You know, if you woke up this morning and you turned on the news and uh, clicked on CNN.com, this is the, the page that you would have landed on. Or, or maybe not. Okay. Okay, now they have the old slide. I'm sorry. Um, but if you would have gone on to CNN.com, what you would have learned is that there was an incident yesterday of a mass shooting in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, where two gunmen walked in to a, a Walmart and killed 20 people and scores others injured. There was also a shooting in a nightclub in Dayton, Ohio, where nine people were killed and scores more injured. And I am sure in the coming days, we'll hear more about why this occurred and the motivation behind it. We're all trying to figure out why. And I know at Living Hope, we don't talk a lot about these current event tragedies and they seem to be occurring more and more, oh, there it is, more uh, often. And, and let me just tell you why I don't talk about it that often, and I'm not trying to belittle or make light of it, and they're horrible, and we do need to be in prayer. But yesterday, like I said, 29 people were murdered. But did you know that Annually in America, on the average, there are 7,452 people who die. So almost 7,500 people die just every day. That's every 12 seconds. So someone just died. Of those, 466 die of accidents, preventable accidents. Tragedy. It, it, it wasn't as if they died after having lived a long life. 53 people in America on the average die daily of homicides. 53 people are killed. That's horrible that someone would take another person's life. But what I was surprised by is that 129 people commit suicide on the average every day. What would cause people to be so uh, despondent that they feel like the only hope that they have is take their own life? 129 on the average take their own life every day in America. And these are just mere deaths per se. On the average, there's 234 rapes, 1,748 induced abortions, 1,370 miscarriages and 71 stillbirths. Mothers who carry their babies to near term only to have that child die at birth. You know, when tragedies occur, people will rant and rave about why. They'll wax about the evils of society and try to blame others and and politics and the such. Philosophers and social commentators will try to give an answer to the age-old question, and that question is, why? 
Why did this occur? Do we not have enough gun laws or uh, are our education system failing us? Or is a group of people responsible for this? Who is to blame? Those who are in the field of religion or those who uh, major on uh, being against religion will tr attempt to answer this question in a slightly different way, not simply why do these tragedies occur, but rather why does God allow this to occur? If there is a sovereign, powerful God, why is your God allowing this? Is what atheists or agnostics would say. Why did God allow the Holocaust? Why did God allow American slavery? Why did God allow all of those little babies to be born with the end of life? And ultimately, many uh, religious people will turn to a particular verse in the Bible, and you, this is perhaps one of the most famous uh, verses in the Bible, you may have it somewhere in your house in a pillow or a mug or a poster or a keychain or a rock. And it is Romans 8, 28. And it is such a, a popular verse that there are times uh, just like uh, Christmas or Easter that when a Christian thing becomes part of the fabric of culture, culture does something to it, dilutes it. And it, it, it brings erroneous truth to it. Romans 8.28 is a sweeping, popular, uh, powerful, eternal verse. And it attempts to give an answer to the question of why, not only about why, but why does God allow evil suffering to occur? But because it is so popular in culture, I believe that we, even in the church, have oftentimes misunderstood this verse. And so if you have not done so yet, would you turn your Bibles with me to Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And I will be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm gonna look at this passage in two parts. Verse 28, I'm going to call it sweeping truth. And verses 29 and 30, I'm going to call it eternal promise. We're going to look at the sweeping truth of Romans 8, 28. Like I said, this particular verse has become so uh, popular in culture. And that when tragedies occur, oftentimes even non-Christians will quote it and try to make sense of the question Why? This is how culture oftentimes understands this particular verse, and I'm going to give uh, perhaps a cultural interpretation of this verse, Romans 8:28. And a lot of culture would understand this verse to mean something like this. We like to think that almost everything that happens in the universe has happened to ultimately bring comfort and happiness to people who are good. I want you to look at it 
sounds okay, but you're not sure because Pastor Steve kind of said it's not okay. If someone were to ask you what Romans 8.28 meant, you might have said something like this, but you're questioning everything. What's wrong with it? You're not sure. I believe this is an erroneous understanding of Romans 8.28, and when we misunderstand Romans 28 in the light of tragedy and suffering, there are times and it can bring us comfort, but there are ways in which it can crush us because we're misunderstanding this timeless truth. And so I'm, I'm, I want us to spend a little bit of time breaking this verse down phrase by phrase, almost bite by bite, uh, in order to uh, clarify some misunderstandings and to, and to clarify what it actually is saying. And we'll begin with the phrase, we know. We know. And we know it's how verse 28 begins. It may not be significant, but I believe it is significant. In chapter, 20, um, in chapter 8 of, of Romans... There are many things that Paul says we know, and there are some things that he says we do not know. He says, for example, uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, but it also, um, in, chapter 20, uh, in chapter 8, he says uh, that we do not know what to pray as we ought. The scripture doesn't say that we know everything. There are times he's clear that we don't know that when we are under the crushing weight of suffering, Paul, uh, probably much smarter than you and me, he's the author of uh, many books of the Bible, who's endured suffering personally so much more than you and me, he says, I don't know even how to pray in the midst of suffering. There's a lack of certainty there. But when he begins verse 28, he says, we know. It is not a matter of opinion. It is not simply a cultural truth. It is not simply wishful thinking. It is not, we like to think. It's not mere just hope that's drawn from the air, but we know. It is an absolute truth that we can claim today. So I want you to know that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is true. It is as true as there is a God. The second phrase is all things. And we know all things. What does all things mean? All things means all things. It doesn't mean uh, some things. It doesn't mean most of the good things. It does not mean the things that God has blessed. It means all things. He has bracketed uh, the latter part of chapter 8 by saying uh, there is suffering in this present time. There's things that are, are so hard that uh, the Spirit gro uh, groans for us uh, too deep for words. Verse 35 says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger, and, and sword are part of our lives. Verse 36 says that for your sake we are being killed all day long. What are all things? He is making a sweeping statement about every single thing 
that happens to a, the life of a believer. He's not simply talking about the daily bread, but he's also talking about mass shootings. He's not talking about merely the, mirac uh, the miracle of birth, but he's talking about the silent pain of miscarriage. He's not uh, talking simply about weddings, but he's talking about the hardships of breakups. He's not simply talking about promotions, but also the layoffs. He's not talking about the remissions to, uh, that we post, but he's talking about the relapses. He's not simply talking about the adorations, but he's talking about the, ador um, the abuses that have plagued people. Do you see, there is not a, listen carefully, there is not a single event, a single encounter, a single word, a single moment, a single millisecond that is outside of the, the words, all things. Christ has said that he has numbered the number of hair in your head. He has said that he's known you before you were even born. All things are included all things that are known to you and all things that are even not known to you. For we know that all things, and here's the third phrase, work together. Work together for good. I want us to be clear on what it does not say because in our uh, popular understanding of Romans 8.28, and listen with me, Oftentimes, the reason why we get in trouble is because we have a sloppy understanding of the Bible. Uh, you know, we hear a great Bible verse and we think, oh yeah, let me quote that. And then we like telephone, we say it over and over again and we lift, uh, leave out a phrase and, and try to get the root of it. And when we try to uh, quote to someone else, uh, Romans 8.28, this is how we may often quote it. And all things are good. That's how we oftentimes see it. But I want us to be clear. It does not say all things are good, but rather all things work together for good. And this is such an important uh, phrase in this verse. You see, because if we are told that we need to believe that all things are good, then we have to somehow be convinced that rape is good, that abuse is good, that murder is good, that Alzheimer is good, that divorce is good, that somehow God delights when his children suffer from those, that God is up there, oh, I'm so glad that happened to you. All things work together for good. And in the sovereign hand of God, even the most annoying, traumatic, evil, painful things that have happened to you or are happening to you or will happen to you, and yes, they are evil, they are bad, God weeps with you, and the Spirit groans for you. But the, under the sovereign hand of God, God takes all of the good things and all of the evil and somehow work together for good in his wisdom and in his power that he can take the worst of the things that ever has happened to you and somehow he can work them for good. They are not good. We ought not to tell people that you ought to rejoice in that evil that has happened to you. That is cruel and that can crush us. Evil is still evil. 
Abuse is still abuse. When Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus knew that he was going to raise up Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember that story? In John chapter 11. But do you remember what Jesus did? Before he raised him up, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because death is still evil and painful and hurtful. He wept with Mary and Martha at the weeping, at the loss of their brother. He does not say, hey, you ought to rejoice. This is a happy time. We know all things work together, and before we set our minds in, I want to clarify this next phrase, for good. For good. We have an idea of what that means. One televangelist posted about this particular verse. He's a really well-known televangelist. This may not be good at the time, but God, demonstra- uh, God promises he's going to bring it all together. One day you'll look back and say, it was good. Sounds okay, doesn't it? One day, one day we'll be able to look back at that thing and go, yeah, wasn't it good? Uh, let me clarify what I think this televangelist is trying to communicate by saying one day we'll be able to look back and declare it good or understand it was good. He also posted this, people will tell you what you're not going to be, how your dreams aren't going to come to pass, and how you don't have the training. They can speak defeat all day long, but here's the key. They are powerless to change the blessing on your life. I believe in some way what he's trying to communicate is that uh, when we look back in our lives, the hurts and pains and evils, we can, we, they will all eventually culminate Uh, turn out to be good in terms of fulfilling our dreams, our pleasures, our comforts, and our happiness. This is an Oprah. This is an Ellen DeGeneres type of theology. And and I apologize for those of you who are big fans. Uh, No knock on them, all right? Um, In in fact, I don't don't know if that's what they actually say. (laughs) What I'm trying to get at, it is, is, it, it is a popular view that that the world looks at Romans 28 and says, uh, ultimately those things will turn out for our good. And so you get laid off. You have to downsize. You sell off the home that you, you so dearly loved and your family had fond memories of and you walk, you move uh, to a different neighborhood and um, you enroll your kids into a school that they didn't want to go to because it's a, it's a slightly different income. Uh, your child had to leave all their friends. Your child shakes their fist at you. Dad, what's wrong with you? I hate being here. It takes a year or two, but eventually your child adjusts in this new environment. They make friends. And your child... Uh, begins to shine at this new school, becomes, uh, graduates valedictorian because, you know, there's less competition. <laughs> and when they apply, Ivy League looks at, at, at your child and says, wow, he comes from a low-income uh, school district, valedictorian, 
will we'll accept this child. And so your child, uh, as he's graduating from high school, gives a testimony. This awful thing that had happened, my dad got laid off. Romans 8, 28, but I'm going to Harvard, praise God. <laughs> right? Isn't that how we normally look at Romans 8, 28? Isn't that the testimony we kind of hear from Romans 8, 28? So we uh, affirm that by looking at the life of Joseph. His brother sold him out. Remember? And you think you have problems with your brothers. Uh, he, he, he gets accused falsely by Potiphar's wife, the boss's wife. She tries to hit on him. And she accuses him of rape. He's in prison and he tries hard to serve his fellow uh, inmates. When they get out, they forget all about him and what happens to Joseph. He eventually gets out, climbs a corporate ladder, becomes the vice premier of all of the Egyptian empire. I, can you imagine Joseph as he's being crowned the vice premier of Egypt and his chariot is going past uh, the throngs of people and there's Potiphar's wife. He looks, I see you. When his brothers come, there's a sense in which uh, if I was Joseph, aha. Romans 8.28. It's taken me a few years, yes, but my dreams, my comforts, my happiness has been fulfilled through my pains. That's how we normally interpret Romans 8.28. But I'm here to say that misinterpretation could be crushing. You see, because as many as stories that we can tell about uh, defeats turning into worldly victories, let me ask you this question. Job lost all of his kids. The health and finances, that's, that's really nothing compared to the loss of his children. At the end of Job, we see that he has more kids. And you go up to Job and say, hey, hey, Romans 8.28, right? You have new kids, like brand new, right? Aren't you happy? What do you think Job would have thought about all of that? He would say, there's not a day that goes by where I don't grieve at the loss of my kids. What are you talking about? The good that you may be thinking is not good for me. Do you see, though, if we point our fingers at Job, if we point our fingers at the, the people who lost their loved ones in uh, El Paso or Dayton, and we somehow try to explain to them this is good, some of them will turn right back at you and say, no. I, I, can, I cannot possibly see how this will turn out for my greater happiness, comfort, dreams, and pleasure. And if we continue to try to uh, understand Romans 8.28 in that way, I, I, I am here to say that it will crush us because we will wait and wait and wait, and sometimes those things will never occur. I thought that those things have happened so that I can be more happy, but why has that not happened? I thought I got fired so that I can get a better job. Why not? 
I thought that relationship ended so that I'll marry a, a man who's taller, more handsome, and richer, but it hasn't happened. Why not? Let me um, try to explain what Romans 8.28 is actually saying. We can't understand it by simply looking at Romans 8.28 in terms of what good means, but we have to look at it in context. Romans 8.28 makes a sweeping statement, and it says, as verse 29 begins, for or because... We can understand the the sweeping truth of verse 28 because what he's going to say in verse 29, okay? And he's going to clarify what good means. Because, or for, verse 29, for those who um, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, The word conformed in the Greek root uh, has morphe, uh, which is the, the term we get metamorphosis, something that changes us. What Romans 8.29 is saying that um, 28 is true because of the work that God is sovereignly doing to change us to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The good that Paul is declaring a timeless truth is not that we would be happy or more comfortable or we would have a more riches or our dreams can be fulfilled, but that we would become more conformed. We would uh, run into the arms of Jesus and become more like him. That is the goodness that he is talking about. That's radically different. And if we understand that, that changes our perspective when we suffer and struggle and we encounter sin. That when pain occurs, that one of the goals of pain is to make us realize that I am mortal, that I am broken, and I need to run to the arm of my Savior, and he, He alone can comfort and heal and give me hope. Let's end it with the last set of phrase. It says, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, he's talking about the same uh, groups of people. He's talking about children of God, the sons of God. We oftentimes uh, throw Romans 8, 28, uh, 8 to say that all things work for good. Everything, God's going God's gonna to work everything out. And um, the the, the qualifier in Romans 8.28 is this, that this verse, this timeless truth is not for everyone. I'm going to say this. This sounds really kind of narrow, but it's not for everyone. It's reserved for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. He's talking about the same group of people. He's talking about Christians. It's not for those who do not want to love God. It's not for those who uh, are not called according to his purpose, have, want to have nothing to do with God's purpose. And when we try to uh, uh, apply this verse to everyone blanket, we are actually doing them a big disservice. Because that ought to drive them to their mortality and to an understanding that we need a heavenly God. 
You know, um, you know, a lot of you raise kids, and I, I don't know if this illustration will work, and I've been trying hard to, to try to figure something out, but hopefully this works. If it doesn't, I won't use it the third service, all right? I used something else at the first service. That didn't work, so, so let's see if this one works better. You know, you've, you've, um, for those of you who raise kids, um, I know, I, I know you guys. I, I, the kind of parents that we have here, we're a bunch of like a bunch of OCD, um, helicopter, tiger, name it. That's you. You know, you know you are right. Um, and uh, before your child is ever born, you've uh, you've mapped out preschools and AP, you know, and the, the school rankings and all of that. You're protective. You know what kind of uh, 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 stroller that you should buy and the formulas and all of that. Um, when time um, occurs when your child has to go to preschool and elementary school, there's this deep anxiety that occurs in parents because there are things now that you cannot control, right? And so you, you send your child to preschool um, and then afterwards, so you want, um, you know, they're there for like two or three hours, or they're, uh, some, some of you don't even send them to preschools because you're all anxious about that, so you, you only send them to kindergarten um, because well, you're legally uh, liable to do that, <laughs> unless you want to homeschool, uh, but you're anxious about that because you don't trust yourself. Um, <laughs> so you send them to kindergarten, and you, they're there for three hours, and they come back, and you're grilling your child, so what happened today? Right? Did anyone say anything mean to you? Did, did their teacher do anything bad to you? Right? You do this, and one day you discover that your child was bullied. Go, oh my gosh, they spoke loudly to you, made you nervous, made you feel all like, oh, you didn't know what, oh no. I'm gonna have a talk with that child and the parent and the teacher and the principal. Right? You know who you are. <laughs> and all the school teachers go, yeah, I know, yeah, those parents. <laughs> right? Um, and there's a sense in which as parents, your child goes and, and, and has these uh, negative encounters. And some of them are real, right? And, and they do encounter bullies and mean kids and all of that. And, and irresponsible teachers and but partially, as parents, what do you do? You understand the brokenness, sometimes the evil that occurs in that surrounding, but you still send them because uh, partially uh, you, you cannot and don't want to protect them from all of those things, but you want them to grow through those things. So you allow brokenness and hurt in the life of your kids so that they can grow to be the kind of man, woman that they need to become. Does that make sense? Hopefully, if this doesn't work, tell me, okay? <laughs> Why does God allow suffering and hurt and evil to surround us? Why doesn't God simply come in and protect us from all of those things? Well, you know, one of the reasons is because you're part of the brokenness and evil and hurt. And another part is all those things he allowed so that we can become conformed to the image of Jesus. We can uh, realize our own brokenness and emptiness and, and, and run to, into the arms of Jesus. 
so we can become more like him. That's an understanding of Romans 8.28. Let, let's go to the Romans 8.29 and 30. And I'll go a little bit quicker, verses 29 and 30. And there are five things that God does or God did in the life of those whom he just talked about, those who, who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. There are five promises that God has made. He, first of all, he said God foreknew them. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew knew the word is knowledge and then uh and the 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 prefix which is before okay he knew us before for knowledge and you know there's um among those who kind of like are interested in theology or biblical studies there's a debate between whether god is truly sovereign like he's all powerful he controls everything and whether we have free will if god is fully in control, does God make some people Christians? Or does God give complete choice to everyone and some people just kind of choose to become Christians? And when someone becomes a Christian, God goes, oh, I was so surprised. And, and like, for sure, I thought you weren't going to be one of those. <laughs> and others go, wow, you're so good. I, I'm for sure, like, you know, oh, what happened? Is God surprised when we become Christians? Or does God ordain it? You know, one of the ways that I try to kind of understand this is by using Romans 8.29 with foreknowledge. I thought that maybe God peered into the future. He's looking, looking, God, mm, is he going to choose me? Is he going to choose me? Is he going to choose me? Oh, okay, I see it. Hey, I choose you first. I understood it this way, and I'm not sure. But those who are uh, theologians who are of the Calvinistic uh, nature, meaning they believe really the, the authority, the sovereignty of God, um, clarify that this word for knowledge, the word knowledge here is not just an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge. So in, in, in biblical language, to know someone, it's not simply I just intellectually know you, but I have a relationship with you. So Romans 8, 29, uh, those theologians contend when God says he foreknew you, it's not that he simply had a knowledge of you, but he had a pre-relationship with you. He foreloved you. Parents foreloved their kids before their kids were ever born. They chose to love them, right? Uh, before the kid does anything beautiful, cute, award, uh, win any awards, God, uh, parents chose to love your their kids, right? All you catapult students here, your parents chose to love you before you did anything. And you, they're still sometimes waiting for you to do something really beautiful, <laughs> right? And, and then your parents love you. It's like, mm, okay, I, I've chosen to love you. And, and a lot of people, um, some theologians believe that this is what he meant, that God chose to love us before we were even born. Secondly, he continues, and, and because... Um, he not only foreknew us, but he also predestined us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, uh, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined, predestined destination. He set a destination for us. He has a place, a direction, uh, a destination for us to get to. He set that for us. And this is a, a verse that is oftentimes used to talk about predestination 
where God is fully in control or not. And here it seems to indicate God is fully in control of the kind of man, woman that we are becoming. It may not happen in this lifetime, but it will happen. Third, uh, and those whom he predestined, he also called. He also called in theology, uh, the camp that believes that God is like completely sovereign, they have this uh, idea called TULIP, and uh, it's an acronym, and uh, the I stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. It's like this grace that compels the person to, to come. Um, it is different from prevailing grace. A prevailing grace is, hey, you want to come? You want to be a Christian? And the, the person goes, mm, I don't know. Some people say yes, some people say no. Irresistible grace, come. And, and say, oh, okay, I'm coming. Right? You cannot resist that irresistible grace. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 6, 55, no one can come to me unless he's granted him by the Father. And so John, um, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 6, when God, God calls you, you have no choice but to come. The fourth thing that happens is God justified. God justified. And we talked about this in Romans chapter 5. It's a legal term that how uh, we are declared righteous without guilt. And finally, God glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, so, so there are four things, remember, God foreknew, God uh, predestined, God called, God justified. Um, and all four of these are in the past tense as if God has already done this. Now the fifth thing, theologians say glorified. If you recall last week, like adoption is done but will be done. There are some things about our salvation that is not yet fully uh, realized yet. And we call that glorification, that when, um, when at the end all is said and done, we will fully change, but it hasn't happened yet. And so when this verse says that we have been glorified, it's in past tense, it's a little bit surprising because we would have expected a future tense. But what theologians say is that there's such a certainty about it that he speaks of it as if, he has, if it has already happened. So now... Let's go back to the question that we began with. Why? Why does God allow suffering and evil? Why has, listen, think carefully, the thing that has hurt you the most, the encounter that has been the most painful, the thing that has been uh, most deeply scarring in your heart and soul, the thing that you just cannot understand, why? Why has God allowed that? Theologically, if we think that God simply gives us free will and God uh, follows along to see what happens, there's not a great deal of comfort there. But if we understand a God who is sovereign, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, but at the same time loving, who is fully in control, and He can take all of our obediences and all of our disobedience, all the good that's around us and all the evil that's around us. If he 
know that although God weeps with us at the evil that's around us, but that he somehow works those things, not so that we can simply be happier, but that we can become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That sometimes, like Job, we won't ever understand why exactly. And maybe it's not for us in this lifetime, but there's a greater purpose. That there's a great deal of comfort in that. I'm going to ask the band, and I'm going to ask the, the, the lead, the, those who are serving communion to be at the t- table. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. There's only one person who ever walked on the face of the earth who can legitimately ask the question, why has this evil happened to me when I am innocent, truly innocent? Why has the wrath of God been poured upon me in an unjust manner? The only one who can truly say that is our Lord Jesus Christ who is without sin. But do you understand that the only one who can ever legitimately ask why suffered, not to make us happier or suffer less, but that we would be more like him. As Tim Kellett said, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer, but so when you suffer, you'll become like him. And so today, we bring all of our pains, all of our whys to the feet of the cross. And we don't understand everything, and not everything are we demanding that God makes me happier. But we rest in the knowledge that it is our God that we can trust in. And so... Uh, When the band plays, that will be an invitation for those that are children of God to come to the table, take a cracker, take a cup, go back to your seats, and we'll partake of it together.